1: Hi, Chris. Good afternoon. Uh, Good to talk again. Uh, As always, lots of stuff to talk about. Um, We have the EU's nine-point plan to save energy and basically to prevent the flow of money into Putin's war coffers. We have um, the Elon Musk takeover of Twitter story um, and lots of stuff going on on the markets. So those are some of the topics that Uh, we'd like to discuss today. Can I just start off on the Twitter story? Um, Elon Musk, um, his takeover of Twitter was um, basically accepted last night, valuing the company at $44 billion. Um, For shareholders, that's a 38% premium on where the share price was on the 1st of April, just before Elon Musk announced uh, he's proposed to take over it's, it's quite extraordinary to see the reaction on Twitter, funnily enough. People are going absolutely apoplectic at the notion that Elon Musk would take Twitter private. And given that Elon Musk, um, I guess, is committed to free speech, I mean, I think there are serious concerns out there about the platform this might provide for one orange hair individual in the United States over the next couple of years. I think another issue comes up around the affordability of this deal. If you assume that he borrows most of this money um, at a rate of whatever, 4 or 5%, uh, the annual debt servicing costs on that loan would exceed Twitter's profits on an annual basis. So the finances of this strike me as being... Very, very strange. And I just wonder how he can actually turn this into something that will make him money and pay back his investment. Um, Then there is the whole question about how much it's going to change about Twitter as a social media vehicle. And um, closer to home for Elon Musk, there's the whole issue about how this might affect Tesla. And indeed, just after the acceptance of the deal was announced last night, Tesla share prices fell back quite significantly. So there's lots of different angles to this. Uh, what do you think?
0: Well, as you say, everybody on Twitter has weighed in on Twitter. And lots and lots of different people have different perspectives. There's a headline in the online edition of the FT today, uh, this afternoon, in fact, saying that Twitter needs to be very careful. Elon Musk version of Twitter needs to be very careful because the EU has a lot to say about content and as we know, the EU um, doesn't like a lot of the stuff that's on Twitter. I don't think any of us does, social media in general. The UK is also limbering up with legislation to try and control the amount of hate speech and various other things that we don't like about, about Twitter and social media. I direct you to an article that was in Uh, is in The Atlantic, which is a fabulous piece, which is not so much about Twitter, but social media in general. So obviously, Twitter is very much part of that, will include other things like Facebook in particular. And the author of this particular piece is very hard-hitting about what social media has done uh, to the United States. And he begins the piece with a biblical digression, and he talks about the Tower of Babel, And that biblical story, myth, one presumes, was a story about the gods destroying men and presumably some women who decided to build something to the heavens. And the way in which they were punished was by giving them all uh, different languages so that they couldn't communicate with each other and they all ended up um, fighting and killing each other. And the author of this article uses that analogy to describe what's happened to the United States with the advent of social media In that it seems to have given us languages that none of us, um, apart from those in the individual bubbles of the language, um, can speak. So we don't speak to each other unless we are in our own little tribes, our own little groups. And discourse has become coarse at best, downright dangerous at worst, dangerous for those of us that try to engage with other people. And that's led to all of the cancel culture nonsense that occupies the airwaves today. I mean, it's a very good piece, and he concludes that social media has made America stupid. One of my favourite sayings of the moment, which I say very carefully, risk of being shot down in flames and misinterpreted, is that I do think we live in an age of stupid. I do think that the public square, our discussions have degraded to the point where we are a very stupid species at times these days. And I've talked about this in, in various contexts, but social media is a big part of this. I think there are lots of other reasons. Um, reality television, which I suppose is a branch of social media, is, a, is another version of this. So I think the discussion about social media is, is taking another twist with Elon Musk. Just why he's doing it, I have no idea. I can only assume that it's a vanity project for the man because Twitter doesn't make the kind of money that would justify the financing that, issues that you just discussed. As an ex-financial analyst, I could run the numbers and tell you that it doesn't make a lot of sense unless it is a vanity project, or unless he thinks that he can turn it around financially and start somehow or other making money from advertising and or charging. Or perhaps he thinks in a few years' time he'll find an even bigger idiot than himself to sell it to. And who's to rule that out? I certainly don't. Uh, In the modern era, I suppose, it's like the way in which billionaires of the past used to compete with each other to buy loss-making newspapers and uh, sometimes they made money from them, sometimes they didn't. Murdoch is a very rich man because of his ability to get cash from his media enterprises. There's lots of other examples of people that have owned newspapers and have lost money. Rich men trying to control the media, I think, is an age-old story, going all the way back to the days of print. And I think that we're just in the 21st incarnation of media barons trying to now dominate social media. Um, We have one man dominating Facebook, now we're going to get one man dominating Twitter. Legislators are going to have a lot to say about this, of course. So this is going to twist and turn in all sorts of unanticipatable ways. Whether or not it makes a difference to the rest of us, I'm not, I'm not quite so sure. I'm a Twitter user. I think that it is um, a cesspit at times and an incredibly useful resource at times. I try to engage with one and not the other. And I know, I know you're the same. But as you say, the the thing that I think has got a lot of people talking is whether or not Donald Trump comes back to Twitter. And I would imagine there are lots of people dreading Donald Trump once again, prior to his maybe becoming president of the United States for the second time, dominating the news headlines every night with his latest tweets. As I say, there's a lot of water to flow under this particular bridge. Uh, Lots of questions ranging from financing to why is he doing it and what does it mean for the media landscape, and uh, our level of our public discourse, which I think is leading to all sorts of problems. Not least, I mean, you can tie it back to Ukraine, because we know that our public debates have been tarnished, infiltrated, poisoned by Russian bots and other foreign governments who who interfere with the way in which we go about our public debates these days. Um, We know that the Brexit referendum was uh, tampered with by Russia, And we know, you know, UK elections, um, they had to go at the US election. There's plenty of evidence to say that, you know, social media, um, if you wanted to ask me, has it been on balance a good or a bad thing? I would say that social media has done to our planet something far worse than coronavirus.
1: It's an absolute cesspit, but... uh, Can I just uh,
0: say one thing, though? I said this a few years ago in an article I wrote for the Irish Times. People went absolutely spare at the Irish Times when I described... Social media in these rather excoriating terms. And um, I was very publicly, I'm not quite sure, attacked by my erstwhile colleagues in the Irish Times, which I thought was a bit rich, given that we're all supposed to stand for free speech and all the rest of it. And it it was an example, a particular example of the way in which I think modern media has become messed around with, with by social media, because I was simply expressing a point of view in a column that I wrote for the Irish Times. And then, ironically enough, on Twitter and other places. My ex-colleagues at the Irish Times essentially argued, at least one or two of them didn't, I didn't have the right to say what I said. If you think about the basic precepts of free speech and the uh, the conceit that we have that we're able to disagree with each other politely rather than deny ourselves the, the free speech, I, in a way, in a very soft, trivial sort of way, I think it was an example of, of uh, me um, perhaps Some people trying to cancel me, which is where we're at today with so many people. It was a very small example compared to what other writers and people in the public sphere have to put up with today. But um, it left me feeling quite sore at the time. And obviously it's left me feeling sore enough to speak about it now.
1: Uh, Well, you know, the definition of an Irish liberal, it's somebody who's open to all ideas as long as they agree with their own. And if they don't, God help you. I, I mean, the Musk owning Twitter. I mean, what's different than the previous ownership. I mean, the Saudis were significant investors in Twitter. So d- does a lot change in terms of the ownership? Because as you say, it will be still be subject to um, national legislation, one thinks and one hopes, obviously. Uh, but is, is there also the possibility that a financing mechanism for something like Twitter would come from wealthy politicians, particularly those with orange hair, um, literally paying the social media vehicle to promulgate stories that are advantageous to themselves. Is that a potential financial stream or is that naive of me?
0: Well, I think anything's up for grabs at the moment, subject to nobody breaking the law, um, the law as it stands, and as the law it might be as it might be changed by regulators in the UK, Europe and even the United States, because I know Congress is having a look at social media and the rules under which it operates as well. But it's it's a public company; it's listed. You can, at the moment, buy and sell shares on the stock exchange in Twitter. I imagine if you know that's going to change very quickly once this offer is formally accepted. I would imagine the shares get suspended reasonably soon once this is all done and dusted. There are various rules regarding takeovers, and then on the face of it, one man controls this enterprise, and subject to obeying the law of the land in which. Twitter operates; he can do what he likes because it will be a privately owned company. Whether then somebody can then actually pay Elon Musk to have a particular profile or a particular high profile on Twitter, I don't know. I guess that's one potential business model going forward. There are there are many in different ways. I would have thought that somebody as imaginative as Mr. Musk could end up charging people for getting prominence on Twitter. A lot of people you know, regard the way in which you do that at the moment is by getting gazillions of followers. There might be other routes to being prominent on Twitter, and they might involve money. But I would imagine regulators may well have something to say about that. But, of course, Musk, I would imagine, I don't know the man, I never will meet him, I suspect, will cry free speech and whatever amendment to the Constitution that, that is in the United States. And if regulators have a go at him... I presume he will come back at them through the courts, arguing about free speech. As I say, this 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 is going to twist and turn in all sorts of different ways, Jim. But one presumes, as a hard-headed businessman, if it isn't a vanity project, he's going to try and make some money out of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I suppose all those people who are going apoplectic about this deal should just leave Twitter if it upsets them that much. Moving on to what's happening at financial markets at the moment. I think the two of us have been a little bit mystified for some time now about the ability of markets to maintain relatively high levels despite all of the stuff that's happening out there in the world at the moment. You know, we we okay the the year to date has been a difficult enough one for markets, but given what's been happening at a global level with the Ukraine war, with the escalation in inflation, with the dramatic change in Short-term interest rate expectations with bond yields rising quite significantly. It's you would have thought markets should have declined a lot further, but yet, uh, you know, they continue to be held up. And I notice in the last twenty-four hours, a couple of things that kind of stand out for me. Well, apart from the impact of Elon Musk and Twitter on um, U.S. markets, particularly, but you you look at Sergei Lavrov, the um, Russian. Minister yesterday accusing NATO of being in a proxy war by supplying weapons to Ukraine. He alluded to the serious risk of nuclear war. And I know in our last podcast, you expressed some very worrying views about the use of tactical nuclear weapons by the Russians. Um, We have China pledging to boost monetary policy support to help that economy survive the lockdown that is now occurring as a result of COVID-19. And the stories out of cities like Shanghai at the moment are quite frightening. But this is obviously going to do significant damage to the Chinese economy. It's going to have significant implications for already very stretched global supply chains. So, you know, China, the the world's second largest economy, is now posing another systemic risk to the global economic outlook and one would have thought by implication, markets. Um, and the, the other thing I noticed is there was a survey of investors by Bloomberg in the last twenty four hours, where seventy percent, over seventy percent of respondents believe that value stocks will outperform growth stocks for the rest of twenty twenty two. So it's it's a it's 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 a strange story. And I, I guess overlooking overhanging all of this is the fact that. Inflation continues to creep up, economic activity continues to deteriorate, um, and even in the United States, you know, we're seeing some pretty weak economic numbers coming out in recent times, um, and yet, the Federal Reserve is hell-bent on increasing interest rates sooner because it believes it has no option in the face of this inflation threat. So it's it's a pretty um, complicated market environment out there, but yet markets still hold up remarkably well, despite the weakness and the volatility we're seeing.
0: Yeah, there's a lot there, Jim. Let's try and unpick some of it. Uh, The first thing to say is that we've been surprised by how, relatively speaking, well, equity markets, stock markets have done this year in the face of that news flow, both geopolitical and economic, and the two are obviously related. That said, as, as we speak, um, by my very rough calculations, the S&P 500, which is the, one of the broad indices of the U.S. equity market, is down about 12% year to date. Now, given where it's come from since all the way back in 2009, that isn't very much. And in our judgment, and that's all it is, 12% isn't very much in the face of that unrelenting negative news, which, has, as, as you said, is about inflation, is about war, is about bond yields. Bond yields don't get talked about very much in in the popular financial press, but they are the most important variable in finance. And they've been going up a lot, and that's been mostly driven by inflation and the way in which that's impacting on central banks and all that stuff that we've talked about, rising interest rates. The lockdowns in China are incredibly significant. um, They keep getting worse rather than better. And winding our story back to the pandemic, a lot of the pre-Ukraine war inflation was caused by the pandemic and its impact on supply chains. There's a what we call in stock markets a bellwether company, AP Muller Maersk, which essentially is a shipping company that um, most of the containers that you'll see stacked up in Dublin port will have Maersk written on them. And uh, this is a ginormous company that reported um, or I think increased its profit estimates this, for this year By a lot today um, because of rising prices, but talked about volumes of trade. Although the price of trade is going up, the amount of trade that is being done in terms of the way we measure these things in real terms, price-adjusted terms, they warned is going to go down a lot this year. Um, Trade because of those supply bottlenecks, but also for other reasons to do with the war and to do perhaps with slowing growth generally trade is suffering. So uh, things don't don't look good. And I would have thought, if you describe all those sets of circumstances, all those factors on December the 31st this year, I would have said that by this time, at the getting towards the end of April, that we would have had a serious stock market correction. We've had a, a small stock market wobble, um, but by no means a serious correction. And my guess, and for what it's worth, it's only a guess, I am not a stock market forecaster. I gave that up a long time ago, Um, but I wouldn't be at all surprised to see stock markets go down um, from here further unless something changes, unless some of that bad news flow begins to turn around. We can all hope that the Ukraine war comes to an end um, and that the killing stops and it comes to an end in a way that frankly favors the Ukrainians. I don't think that's a controversial um, wish of mine I think we'd all we'd all share that it could well be that uh, inflation begins to turn quite possibly it doesn't feel like it at the moment but at some point it will peak because an awful lot of these supply chain problems we've been saying this for well over a year now Jim supply chains by them in and of themselves those sorts of issues do correct themselves eventually but my heavens it is eventually taking a very long time So the circumstances in which this can change, we can see, but they don't seem likely to me at the moment. So I do think from a financial market point of view, this is going to get worse before it gets better. And as you rightly point out, Sergei Lavrov, the the Russian foreign minister, uh, muttering the words that he used yesterday about nuclear war, that just adds to the mix, in my view, that terrifies the wits out of all of us. Um, And it should really be terrifying stock markets by more than it actually is. Not a good look, I don't think. And central banks have an enormously difficult task on their hands, as we've talked about many, many times. So, yeah, I, th- I think the financial environment is, is going to be extremely tricky going forward.
1: The European Commission and the International Energy Agency, the IEA, um, has just come out and presented a nine-step plan to reduce the EU's dependence on Russian fossil fuels, safe households' money, protect the climate and help Ukraine. Uh, that's how this plan is officially termed. And I'll just run through the nine point plan to conserve energy and so on. Um if you don't mind, will I can I indulge Go ahead. It? okay knock yourself first out. The first thing is turn down heating and use less air conditioning. So the Commission is suggesting nineteen or twenty degrees centigrade instead of the EU average of twenty two degrees. So, in other words, turn down your heating a little bit and use less air conditioning. Secondly, adjust, excuse me, adjust your boiler settings because lower temperatures setting your boilers can save around 100 euro per annum, it is estimated. Thirdly, work from home because commuting accounts for around a quarter of oil use in EU cars. Four, use your car more economically, making car trips with multiple people relying on air conditioning to a lesser extent. Number five, reduce your speed on highways. Driving an average of 10 kilometres per hour slower will reduce your average fuel bills by 60 euro per year. Number six, leave your car at home on a Sunday in large cities. Um, And I have to say, in that context, it it amazes me and depresses me. Um, Every Sunday here in Dublin, where I live, uh, traffic is just absolutely berserk, and you just wonder what the hell people are doing in their cars, um, to that extent, um, on a weekend. But anyway, that's point number six leaving your car at home on Sundays in large cities. Number seven, walk or bike short journeys instead of driving. Um, and it says that a third of EU car journeys are less than three kilometers. So, why, in the name of God, the majority of people? Would use the car for journeys of less than three kilometres defies logic, really. Number eight, use public transport. And uh, I guess the proviso there is providing public transport is available. And um, in Dublin, but to a much greater extent around the country, the public transport options are not very attractive. You know, they're not very compelling. There's no doubt about that. And number nine, and this is one that will not sit easily with Irish people. Skip the airplane and take the train. You know, I wish I could get a train to um, Portugal, but I can't. I can get one to Warford, all
0: right. So you're a, you're, a, you're a Munster man, is that right, Jim?
1: Uh, that is absolutely correct.
0: Well, um, I know that you probably have never heard of an oval ball game shaped thing called rugby.
1: I've there's, heard of it in the Munster context. Yeah,
0: there's a very big game on involving Munster. Um, this might sound a bit weird. You probably don't know this. It's going to take place in Dublin uh, very soon. You and, know why? Um, because because Thurman Park has a has um, what's Sheeran. his name she, Ed Sheeran yeah. playing. Um, somebody knows how to organise things, don't they? Um, anyway, moving aside from Munster, they'll make they'll make presumably a lot more money out from Ed Sheeran than they will from a European Champions Cup rugby game. Well,
1: but tell and me, you, what's the relevance to the Nine Pint Plan of this, Chris?
0: All the Munster fans are complaining that, they, that, they, that they, there aren't enough trains being laid on to Dublin for the game. Yes, indeed. But they can't actually get there without driving yeah. and make, making your point about, about trains. And there's a lot, ironically, on social media about, about this. Um, I follow a lot of rugby accounts. The uh, nine-point plan, I think it's a very good idea. I, I've, I've been on other podcasts this week talking about this, actually. So um, in fairness to them, uh, to the Irish Independent, I've mentioned the Irish Times today, so I should mention the competitor for, for fair, In Fairness, had me talking about this. What I said was that I thought it was all carrot and no stick. It's a good idea. We should all be doing these things. We should have all been doing these things anyway. The idea that we would waste fossil fuels in the um, given the environmental crisis is nuts. The reason why we've had carbon tax debates for so long and why Ireland and other countries have been putting carbon taxes on fossil fuels is for good environmental reasons. And one of the reasons why we economists like carbon taxes is that it puts the price of these things up and so it encourages people to not use them at all or to the extent that they need energy to switch to alternatives. So it's all good stuff. And we also know that the reason why we've got to do this is because of the war in Ukraine, in that every penny that we spend on fossil fuels all or some of it is eventually in the chain of these things, the global supply chain for energy. Even if we're not buying it directly from Russia, some of it's finding its way to Russia. And if you're German, a good part of what you're spending is finding its way to Russia. And so every time you switch on a light bulb, or more importantly, switch off a light bulb or drive your car a bit slower or don't drive your car at all or get on your bike, you're not sending money to Putin to finance his war. And I would have sold that as as a harder hitting PR message for what the Commission and the IEA have done over the last few days. That's a quibble, but I, do, I think their heart is in the right place. But I wonder if it is going to have to be followed up by legislation, because I think there's a very complex calculus to be done for the next year, which revolves around the question of will there be uh, supply rationing, which is a slightly anodyne, verging on polite way of saying, will there be power cuts? And I don't know. Uh, It depends on so many different factors. The weather is going to be a big one. The extent to which we can do these things that the European Commission is suggesting we do will be another. But the biggie, of course, is the extent to which Germany decides or not decides, decides not to buy Russian gas. At the moment, Germany is saying that their economy is too dependent on Russian oil and gas, gas in particular, for them to do it immediately, they're going to do it over a number of years rather than a number of days. Those of us who take a more uh, high moral ground, ethical position, um, possibly because we're not in Germany, uh, say that they should stop doing it today. And that's the position that I have taken both in print and on this podcast. Germany has said no, uh, and that's because they have an economy built around Russian energy, effectively. Um, and it's you know true to say that, that very high-powered Mercedes that you drive, Jim, is essentially Russian gas turned into, via German engineering, into into a nice car.
1: Chris, can I correct the record here? I certainly do not drive a Mercedes. Um, I said
0: a high-powered Mercedes. Maybe it's just an ordinary one, is it?
1: (laughs) No, I've never sat in one in my life, Chris. I Um, doubt that, go, I go go for much smaller um, Renault cars. I, I always am tempted to believe that there's an inverse relationship between the size of a car and the size of the brain. Uh, but that's not something...
0: Oh, geez, I, I wondered where you were going with that, Jim. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, looking at what the European Commission is saying here, um, you know, it all makes absolutely blatant sense. There's no doubt about that. It's, it's, it's not rocket science. It's very logical stuff. Um, And if you get enough people across the European continent behaving like this, you know, the the implications and the benefits will be very, very significant. Um, And and it's not a huge sacrifice on anybody's part to do, I think, anything of the nine there. The only one, as we said, you'd have reservations about is the whole public transport. If the option isn't there, well, then you have a problem. But on continent, Europe, you know, public transport, the train network is generally fantastic. So, you know, you could you could survive without a car if you had to um and i i would agree with you i i think the message here is every time you leave your light on when you leave the room you're putting another cent into putin's warmongering machine and i think we should all stand up and uh be counted on that one and do something about it so changes in behavior um, a very good idea And and regardless of course of the ukraine horrors um, th- these things make logical sense anyway in the context of climate change and um, and and so, and so on. Do you do you believe people will actually take this seriously?
0: I think they will. Um, I can't speak for everybody. Uh, I don't know everybody, um, but certainly all of the people that I have spoken with about this subject have said to me something similar to what you've just said, which is that they are making an effort already particularly when it comes to uh, thinking about the the waste of energy that we all have in our homes. Insulation is obviously something that requires money um, and people are being slower to do that. But simple things like turning the TV off before you go to bed, not leaving it on standby, uh, leaving your phone chargers plugged in without the phone actually charging, believe it or not, does consume a bit of energy. All these things are very small. But I've Googled all of the ways in which, um, you know, we do waste energy, like like leaving phone and laptop and other chargers plugged in. And uh, it's difficult to get precise estimates. People that I read say about or up to certain amounts of money saved per year. But when you add it all up, it's not trivial. And as you say, if it just saves one penny, one red cent of of cash being sent to, to Putin's war machine, surely it's worth doing. And if you add in the environmental impact of us consuming this, this, this consuming less energy, then it has to be worth doing, because these small things added up will make a difference. And, you know, there's all sorts of other things that we should be doing. Um, I noticed today, again, this social media theme runs throughout our podcast. Kwezi Teng, who's a minister in Boris Johnson's government, tweeted this afternoon about the relative costs of alternative energy, nuclear, and gas-produced electricity. And he's actually tweeted a chart. My God, a minister tweeting a chart. And the, um, the relative ga- gap that's opened up between... We're not talking about dirty coal or anything like that. We're talking about gas, which is what we've switched off all our coal-fired power stations and change them over to gas in order to produce electricity because gas is cleaner than coal. Solar and wind, I mean, gas can't even compete closely with solar and wind now. The gap is just opening up all the time. And solar and wind are much, much cheaper. You should take a look at this chart, Jim. I'll send it to you after this podcast. And so the 10th point I would add to the EU's plan is, and we've talked about this, and I think it's a message that we should keep hammering home, is stop being a NIMBY about solar and wind farms in your backyard. Um, it's all very well for me because I don't live anywhere near that's likely to have a, a, a big um, solar and wind farm. So, you know, I accept that. But um, one way or another, we're going to have to build out much, much more solar and wind capacity on these two islands. And we've got to stop being nimbies about it. And that's just that straight economics because it's so much cheaper than gas-fired power plants now and it's environmentalism, and it's not sending money to Putin as well. So it's a triple whammy, Jim, and we've just got to do it. And and that brings me back to a word that you used a couple of minutes ago, which relates to your question about really will people do anything, and that's about sacrifice. Because I do think that we live in a world where it's now time to stand up and be counted, and I've said that in different contexts, in different ways on this podcast recently. And a great friend of this podcast uh, picked me up on this only yesterday. And she said to me, well, what do you think people should be doing in terms of what we can, should, what did be doing? What did I mean what, by standing up and be counted? And there are there so many different aspects to this. There's um, how we can stand up and be counted when it comes to support for Ukraine. How we can stand up and be counted when it comes to these environmental issues which, as as we say, via financing, is linked to the Ukraine conflict. Um, And more generally, the, the culture that has been unleashed, the culture war that's been unleashed by social media, in particular, cancel culture, extreme wokery, and all those other issues, I think they're all related, they're all linked, they're separate but linked. People need to be making a stand, and we think we make a stand via this podcast and our writings. You know, we can say these things, and in our very, very tiny way, we make a, a, a contribution to the debate, hopefully in a fearless way. Um, but one of the things I'm struck by, and this was the question that was asked me by the great friend of the podcast, um, as I say, only yesterday, is what what can ordinary pe- people do? What can people who don't have access to put their own podcasts do? And I think the energy thing is definitely one of them, making a conscious effort to switch things off and do all of the things that the EU Commission urged us to do. Um, I would add not just slower driving to that list, but better driving and realise that, yes, you have to use the brakes on your car. Please do for safety reasons, but also realise that every time you use the brakes, you're chucking euros out the window and those euros are going straight to Putin um, in one way or another. And that heavy acceleration and heavy braking that go with heavy, unnecessary acceleration um, would contribute a lot to energy efficiency of your motor car. Um, and I could go on about that. There's also all of the stuff about cancel culture and about freedom of speech, because one of the things that in the UK, um, I'm not quite sure whether people in Ireland realise this to the fullest extent, is that we learnt during the Brexit debates in the UK to shut our mouths, actually to a considerable extent, particularly when with friends, uh, because there were so many rows that were so atypical of the British. People realized that they were risking relationships, risking friendships, risking relationships with with people with whom they were related as a result of these ridiculously strident, out of control, social media driven Brexit debates. It's the same in the United States. I've just come back from Canada, where even there, they talk about it in these terms, that they've learnt not to talk about certain issues with their friends, because they know that they will lose their friends if they talk about these issues. So these things don't get talked about. People don't talk about the extreme wokery um, nearly as much as they should, because we're all worried that if we even mention transgender rights, let alone talk about which side of the debate we stand on we're going to get absolutely piled on with respect to social media again, comments and all the other different ways people react. So I think the biggest thing that anybody can do, apart from the energy thing, is stand up and be counted with respect to your views. Explain them patiently, politely, but make a stand. Say what it is that you think, explain why, take the crap that's thrown at you by social media if that's your chosen platform. But now is the time not to be silent. Don't do what we did here in Britain during Brexit, which was learn to shut up. It's time to stand up.
1: Uh, Interesting. I was speaking to a businessman in Mumbai in India this morning who was asking me about the impact of the Ukraine situation on Europe and Ireland particularly, and um he just could not understand how Europe could possibly ban the importation of energy from Russia because of this war. Just couldn't understand how you could possibly even contemplate that given the economic damage it would cause. Um I didn't get involved in an argument, but I, I guess my perspective suffice to say I believe we are now at a point where we have to think about our values um against our economic beliefs, and I think values should win out in the current debate. Uh, to me, I've no doubt about that. Um, I spoke on a couple of previous podcasts about a solar, a proposed solar, w- solar farm development in my home parish down in County Waterford. And funnily enough, last Saturday, I got contacted by somebody to know would I speak at a public meeting this Friday night about on the issue. Um, they weren't asking me to take one side or the other as far as I could see. But um, I actually declined. And number one, I'm doing I'm speaking at another event this Friday night, so I couldn't do it anyway. Uh, but secondly, I'm just not sure um, if I'd like to do it because I don't live there, so I don't have a vested interest. And why should an outsider come in um expressing views on this issue? But secondly, um, it's causing civil war down there. And uh, I certainly don't want to um, create a lot of enemies on either side of the debate at this juncture. So this is a point where I have decided, uh, probably against all my better beliefs, that's probably not worthwhile getting involved in an issue like that at this juncture. Uh, but I think you're saying,
0: making my point for me, Jim. I am,
1: I am indeed, Chris, absolutely, big time. Listen, good to talk again. and. Talk to you in a few days. Cheers, buddy. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus,